Vodka. 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 Hey everyone, it's Amber Love from Vodka O'Clock Podcast and AmberUnmasked.com. Right now, uh, I've got a brand new thing to talk about. I've launched a Patreon uh, over at uh, patreon.com slash amberunmasked. And what that means is that you can sponsor the show and the website per creation. So for as little as $1 per creation, um, you would, for example, if I if I put up a podcast episode like this one and I put that as a Patreon-specific thing, then that means that you would be willing to pay a dollar, like a tip. It's basically an online tip system. So that's brand new, and if you have any questions, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber, and I will try to answer your questions. I took care of some basic information at the website, and it's a sticky post, so you can always go and reference that. Today, my guest is Tess Craft. She's joining the show for the first time. So just a, a reminder that we are labeled as an explicit website and podcast. So uh, Tess and I are willing to talk about anything uh, because we get along that way. So... Uh, you never know what's going to come up. Um, but we're going to talk about her experiences in the music and entertainment industry, the world of steampunk, and what it's like for her to live uh, with all of those things, uh, all while having a painful illness. So Tess, hey, welcome to Vodka Clock. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So, uh, you know, if uh, people are not familiar with you, if they haven't bumped into you at a convention, let's just get some background information uh, because I know you through comic conventions and steampunk conventions and that sort of thing, but your day job is completely different. So what is that? Uh, I run the box office at a mid-sized concert venue. So it's working in music and with comedians and other widely varied performers from the start of the process of where the show is announced all the way through getting every patron in the door. So it's uh, it's at one way technical and in another way, very much get the rock star the cup of coffee he wants because otherwise he'll have a hissy fit kind of thing. So you have to take a sort of a combination of mommy, boss, and servant role on a daily basis. Pretty much. Luckily, some of our other staff deals with the more you know, servant intensive stuff. But if there's somebody who has to be the one to call the police when security staff is busy breaking up some kind of brawl, I end up doing it. Okay. So was that something that you were specifically looking to get into? Like you just uh, gravitated towards entertainment and wanted to be in that, that field somehow? Or um, was it just like you landed there? Oh, not even a little. I completely landed there. I originally was in social work for almost a decade, and the that actually is a big part of where my illness became a problem for me professionally, and I have since had to move to an industry that is far less nine-to-five specific and that has a little more flexibility than a traditional you know, social work, like DHS position. So then you, you found the flexibility that you needed, but what, um, so what was it like? What is, if you, you know, you're willing to talk about your condition and, um, and name it 
if oh, you know. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was diagnosed in 2009 with what's called fibromyalgia. It is a partially autoimmune disorder, partially central nervous system disorder, where the pain response process in um, in your muscles goes on overdrive. And even light pressure can cause severe pain. It uh, It's based on the idea that your nerves start firing with pain responses, even there's no, though there's no painful stimulus. So aching muscles, uh, you know, sore points all over your body. It also includes sleep disturbances, uh, extreme fatigue. It's been associated with uh, reproductive problems because it has a strong impact on how your adrenal glands operate. Because if you spend all your time in like, constant fight or flight i'm in pain stimulus weather regardless of situation essentially your adrenals crap out and it's uh it's not as well understood as some of the other you know like rheumatologic disorders and such that affect a similar population being about 80 percent women because it's more of a diagnosis of elimination as opposed to, oh, we have a test. Oh, now we know what it is. Okay. Uh, the, the only time I can recall looking it up, it was like you had to meet, like there were 12 spots of pain or something that had to somehow impact your life or something like that. Like that was the best that they could do. Yeah, you have to have um, 11 of 16 pressure points you also had to have been experiencing that for six months or more on both sides of your body and had to have other, you know, fatigue, sleep disturbance, etc. because the symptoms are similar to things like Lyme disease and chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, rheumatoid arthritis. And you really have to cut everything else out first. How did, um, like, what was it what that became the discovery process for you while you were there? Like, take me back to when you're, you're there and you're a social worker and, you're, you know, you're, you're going through this daily grind at a desk. Well, was it something that y you heard of before or was this all a complete surprise? I had heard of it before, uh, but I was not familiar with it in the sense that, you know, it's like you've heard of Lyme disease before, but you're not particularly familiar with it. It's a, it's a thing you hear about. Um, I, by the, after the time I turned 20 or 21, I noticed that in particular my sleep patterns had changed somewhat dramatically over the years. And figured, oh, well, you know what, it's probably just, you know, working full time and going to school full time. And I, I'm not sleeping because I'm stressed out. And as time progressed, I've, I found that there began to be a series of painful reproductive problems as well. Oh, it's girl stuff. It's nothing all related. Over the last probably two years that I was in social work, I was getting sick all the time. I couldn't I either couldn't sleep or I slept 12 or 14 hours a day 
and was finding that no matter how much sleep I got, I was still exhausted and a lot of muscle aches and pains. So I assumed I had something like mono. Went to my doctor, did, did some basic testing, and we monitored it for like 18 months. Well, during that 18 months, I'm taking sick days all over the place. Uh, work is still getting done because I was making myself nuts trying to finish all of the projects on my plate. The more stressful my, my job got, the worse it got. So when we started to connect that it was a, it was exacerbated by stress, that helped narrow down some of the, the options since by this point it had continued for six months, then a year, then a year and a half. And that's when we finally came to the point of we've tested for everything else. Let's, let's go see a rheumatologist. The rheumatologist that I saw the first time was like, well, maybe, I don't know, do some more tests. At that point, my primary care physician sent me to the University of Michigan. And we went through the same testing process over again. And that's when we came to the official diagnosis. Did it impact people that were around you at all, either in, you know, in your social life or at the office? Oh, absolutely. I, it, I was calling into conference calls from home. I was remote working for, for projects. My coworkers started to really resent the fact that I seemed to have a different schedule than they did. Um, mind you, they weren't seeing the volume of work product. That was only my supervisor. Um, the, the staff members that reported to me were starting to go a little bit off the rails because they didn't have sufficient guidance. And, you know, that's on me because I was not there. And when, at, when it came to really ahead professionally, we had changed organizational leadership and had a new CEO and organizational president come in and she went on a house clearing rampage. They always do. I've been through yeah. it. Yeah. And the first yeah. thing she looked at was attendance as, without consideration of work product, of course. So that became an issue. At this point, I had already disclosed my disability to my supervisor and their and the project director and they were both very understanding but she was having none of it so ultimately as the illness became progressively more severe because since we didn't have a diagnosis at that point the their the treatment options were limited so it became more severe she got more more strict more severe more strict and so on and so forth until she finally insisted that I be let go at that point, I had already backed away hugely from social commitments with my family because there are some days where you make the choice of how to spend your spoons, which is, okay, am I going to go to work today or am I going to go and do something social today or do I simply have enough energy to get up, brush my teeth, wash my face and put on clean pajamas. It really, you and it, there's no way of predicting it. Um, and my personal social life suffered really dramatically. I've managed to hang on to most of the friendships that were through that time, 
but I met, it got to the point where I, people weren't even inviting me to like milestone events anymore because I, and I would get this directly from the person that I would be talking to be like, wait, you guys had a birthday party for your child? Yeah, we figured you wouldn't come. So I had, I had to make a decision at that point. Am I going to stay in an industry where clearly the stress is causing the illness to become worse? Am I going to try and balance any kind of social life with the fact that some days I get home and all I can manage to do is eat dinner and go to sleep. If I, if I'm keeping social commitments, what comes first, my family or my friends? And I have found that in the years since then, that has had a very cyclical pattern of repeating, improving, declining, etc. So then while it seems like you had to make all of these decisions and it, it sounds like you were take, making these decisions like on your own, what sort of community support did you have? I was very fortunate that I have first an incredible primary care physician who has fought tooth and nail for every change in treatment regimen for every denial from the insurance company about something that isn't covered or they wanted wanted me to jump through all sorts of hoops for testing. That's been a huge help because I don't have to be the one then making those phone calls and, you know, appearing before a review board, etc. Uh, professionally, my my support work was very limited. I had my immediate supervisor who was very understanding, but also knew that he wasn't overriding the CEO's decision-making process. My family has been a mix of supportive and what do you mean you don't look sick? My My spouse has been exceptionally supportive, even if he doesn't necessarily understand what the experience is like. You know, this is a guy that gets a cold once a year and that's it. But my friends, even the ones who I haven't seen in two years because I haven't had the energy to make the choice between, all right, I'm going to work a convention or I have work four nights this week. I need to stay home those that other time. They've been very understanding of me not coming to things, as well as once I talked publicly about what was going on, I I received immediate emails and phone calls and text messages saying, you know, my my aunt, my sister, myself, etc. We're all experiencing the same thing, and I found a wealth of information that was directed towards me as far as diet and exercise and non-traditional, sometimes homeopathic remedies, things that I wouldn't necessarily have thought about without making myself insane with research. And sometimes it's just a case of saying, guys, I'm just not up to it. I know I said I would come. I will come to something when I have the energy for it. And they've come to understand that my 
ability to have a social life really is going to be somewhat unpredictable, particularly in the industry that I'm in now. Are you happier now that you've made the career switch? Most of the time, absolutely. I do still miss the actual work of social work. I loved what I did. I had a real passion for it. And it wasn't until I came to the understanding that the constant stress and the long hours and the kind of grinding workload that came along with it was actually making the illness so much worse. And I was having flares all the time. It was very hard for me to look at this, you know, passion that I'd had since I was a little kid to do something that helped people and to realize that it was actually working its way towards killing me. So to have to step away from that, it was very, very challenging. Has your definition of success changed because of all of this? Absolutely. I consider... I came from a family that has very, very high standards for what success is. You know, it's you're a, you're a successful, you're a, you're a partner at a law firm, you're a doctor, something usually related to financial success. And here I was, you know, the weirdo who's not in some kind of high capital industry. And then all of a sudden, what do you mean you can't keep a job in your field? Well, what it means is I wasn't able to keep a full-time job at any point until the medication process and understanding and treatment, recognizing symptoms and triggers was actually far enough along. Like I didn't realize until after I was diagnosed that I had been experiencing flares for at least a decade and that they had become progressively worse over time. So that I have definitely re redirected my notion of what is successful. For me, it's, am I happy doing it? Could I walk away from it and not feel bad if it came down to it? Does it allow me to have the time that I want when I have the energy for it? And am I earning enough to survive? That's, that's about all I, I look for out of successful at this point. You know, I'm with the particular industry that is pretty easy to achieve because you know what? Ultimately, it's concert tickets. It's not whether or not someone keeps their DHS benefits. But it took some adjusting to, to get to a point where I could accept that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to live in the 3,500 square foot home that I grew up in. Right. But, you know, I, I came down to the point where I'll take having some measure of happiness and some me measure of being able to accept who I am, what my strengths and limitations are, and not have to worry about, do I have to work 80 hours a week to get where I need to be? As I said earlier, uh, you and I have some common ground with things like 
comic books and steampunk and, um, you know, obviously music is important to you. So what is it that those types of entertainment do for you? Uh, well, first and foremost, it's always been an escape. If no matter how lousy I may feel, I can still enjoy a a movie. I can still read a new graphic novel and have something that's intellectually stimulating as well as interesting and that puts me outside of my own world for a while. Uh, with music, I've, I have expressed most of the, I could express all of the emotion in virtually every situation in my life through music. You know, there, there's a playlist for everything that from, you know, at complete joy at a, a wonderful life event to can I just crawl under my bed and never come back out? You know, there's, that's been a, a real huge impact on my ability to also take myself out of my own head long enough to recognize that perhaps things are not as bad as they may appear. And particularly with it being that while I'd always been a fan of comic books, I've always been interested in movies. I've always been passionate about music. Having come into being part of working conventions or working in the industry was completely by chance and almost literally a result of my fibromyalgia experiences. So it's, uh, it had something positive come into your life Abs- that absolutely. you might not have known about. I, I never would have expected, you know, there I was at 35 out of a professional full-time job for the first time in like a decade and actually more than a decade. I'd been working in my field doing what I wanted and all of a sudden it was, you know, I live in Detroit. The, the, the market is very glutted with nonprofit professionals. So it was, okay, well, what do I do next? Knowing that I was going to spend anywhere from six to nine months just finding a treatment regimen that worked because you have a progression of like, like anyone who suffers from mental illness or other, um, you know, serious illness that they're going to understand you have a progression of you try this medication, you try this medication, you step up this dosage, but then you have to ramp back down. It, it's a, not a direct path. And sometimes it's one where, wow, we didn't expect that side effect. And, you know, you, you can't sleep for two weeks straight. You know, no one can keep, a, at least I can't keep a full-time professional schedule with that kind of stuff going on. So I knew I had the opportunity to really concentrate on trying to get the treatment back in place. But I also knew that I was going to have to go back to work before too long. So when I did go back to work, it was completely by chance. I had a friend who asked if I wanted to work at her vendor booth 
at a steampunk convention. And then I spent the next 18 months traveling all over the country, working and attending conventions because I had so much fun. The, the hours are long. The work is physically exhausting. But I always felt better doing that than I did in maybe the last year and a half that I was working in my professional field. Because at the end of the day, you, you turn off the light and you walk away. It's definitely not the same kind of stress. It's t- completely different stress. It's dealing with, with customers and, you know, making sure that you guys are selling enough. And like you said, the physical demands of a convention are unbelievable. I mean, people might think that, oh, it's all fun. And, and it's like, oh, God, it's so tiring. <laughs> it's, you know, and... Um, shows like the steampunk world's fair and those those vendor booths don't actually have like a time schedule it's sort of like a 24-hour convention you're open when you want to be open (laughs) is it you know i i know it's very different from you know from comic cons but um do you have different experiences based on what kind of show you're doing oh absolutely um comic book conventions as a general rule they have they're very set, set up and tear down hours. They have very explicit dealer's room hours. And then most of the programming goes on outside of that space. If you're talking about science fiction conventions or steampunk conventions or like I, I worked a, a tattoo convention once, um, those have a much more organic you can sometimes you set your hours sometimes they're the hours are set but there's other stuff that goes along with it the for example like you mentioned steampunk world's fair the traditional dealer's room is open until at least midnight and if you're vending out of your hotel room like this is that that is at that show you might still be open at 3 a.m it all depends um but comic book conventions seem to have a more specific, rigid structure. And I've worked a little bit of all of them. But I, I have found that even with it being physically exhausting, with the travel being physically exhausting, you know, you leave, I would leave Detroit on a Tuesday or a Wednesday morning, drive to Minneapolis, set up the booth, work the show, in the evenings, be very socially active because that's just kind of what you do at conventions and work, work the next day, work the, work the final day, do the teardown, get back in the car and drive 13 hours back to Detroit. It, it's completely exhausting, but not in the same sense that my, my previous field was. I was not emotionally drained or so intensely stressed out that I couldn't that I couldn't function I was covered in bruises and had driven all over the country but I was actually having fun and I didn't realize really how much a a stressful right like traditional work environment was wearing me down 
Well, it sounds like you also have a good boss in the small business opportunities. You, you know, you don't have somebody who's just going to ride your ass. And if you say, you know, on this 13-hour trip, hey, I need to stop right now, you know, while you're, while you're you know, commuting together or something. Like, it sounds like you have a really, because you're, fr- you're also friends and, you know, it's not a boss that is not understanding like the CEO that you had. Oh, absolutely. I've been, I've been very fortunate that for the small handful of vendors that I have worked for, I have had a personal relationship with them before I ever worked for them and have been able to not only be upfront about, hey, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, we're closing and I'm going back to our hotel room and I'm going to bed if I just don't feel up to it. If, if we're taking that long drive and my entire body is one giant like knotted pretzel and I've got to stop for 30 minutes, totally understanding of that because it's not the same kind of industry. And as that progressed into me having the opportunity to work at the venue that I do, same by chance, hey, I need somebody part-time, it fit in the spaces for when I wasn't traveling and was fortunate enough to have a very understanding pair of bosses there as well who said, you know what, if you're having a bad day or if your travel schedule took too much out of you, switch your shift for that day. It's, it's never been, it's never been an issue. It's not... I don't know if it's just the, char- the character of the industry or if it's the particular people that I have worked with, but I find that creative people take a very diff- different approach. Like it's not the regular nine to five, and that's probably a big part of why they're doing it. I was going to say it sounds um, – it's not that there's no business – skills I mean it's you know even when you're a creative type you have to be a business person it's just that it's a very different work ethic and work thought processes especially when you're working for independent vendors like you do you have people who um, they're not answering to a gigantic board of trustees you know they have their own mission they have their own ideas and like you said it's creative a lot of creative people it's it's amazing to me how uh, how the the creative people who still need to make a profit sound like they had more charitable thought processes than when you were in the in actual charity type of job oh absolutely i have found that while i worked with people who were truly good people who had a genuine interest in the community, all of that interest what seemed to be expended for the job most of the time. When, I work, when I've worked with independent business owners and people who have made creativity their business, they, I find that I don't know if it's just that they're working at their own pace, if, they're not, if it's because they're not answering to that board of trustees, but that they've had much more interest in me, the human being, as opposed to me, the employee. And I have wanted to work even harder for for those who have made the effort to be, you know, to to be a friend. Whether it's just in a, even if it's not in a, you know, 
I'm going to call you at two in the morning when something goes wrong kind of thing. That they've made a greater effort to be understanding and recognize that we're not just the the number that that our you know payroll report lists. Right. So as women, one of the things that we you know we often talk about is experiencing harassment in places like conventions, regardless of the genre, or the workplace, or online. And one of the things that I find remarkable is that even in those settings where sometimes there's a fear, places like uh, steampunk shows and comic book shows and sex positive uh, sex education shows, total strangers <laughs> can be like the the most odd support group that's just like ad hoc. You don't even know their names, but you're having a problem and whether you're just in a chair in the lobby or if you're at the bar or whatever it is, somehow there's something about these creative communities that um, they're, they're these wonderful, heartful moments. And it's, I, and I, I didn't get those experiences in corporate. Oh, definitely not. You know, they're, it's hard to explain to people who aren't familiar with the way some of these events are just more organically that you might meet people whom you've never met before and suddenly there's a true human connection there and i and i think that part of that is that in the creative industries particularly if you're looking at writers artists um people who 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 craft etc they're they're looking at the human condition from a very different perspective. It's I'm fascinated or I'm intrigued or I'm interested in your human condition because that's not only, and not to make it sound self-serving, it's that's what drives creative experience. That's how can you write a, a novel about the, the, the experience that you heard about with, if you hadn't sat down and talked to that stranger in the bar that told you the story or what have you, or you have the, the experience of, Hey, you're like me. You, you appear to have the same interests and I can see that you're, you're hurting, you're sad, you're excited. And you, and these very natural, like flowing dynamic exchanges come out of that when when you're in a corporate environment you might know that the the person in the cube next to you has a daughter who's a girl scout and that she's selling cookies but you don't for the most part unless it's a invested relationship you don't know that they're having trouble at home you don't know that they're having some kind of illness or other personal problem because we're not supposed to bring it there. Something that I, I read on Twitter in the past week, um, because uh, some, of, some of the cool hashtags that I, I like to see are things like we need uh, diverse books or, um, you know, that, there's a, a new one called Comics Forward, pushing Comics Forward that um, 
the executives at Boom Studios started. And what these things do regarding our entertainment consumption is they can bring awareness as to things that are big gaping voids and it's it's not just about making money in a particular marketplace that hasn't been addressed enough but it's about giving people connections and characters and storylines and things that that are relatable and I saw this man tweet saying hey I'm in a wheelchair and I don't like Professor X I need diverse books or I need diverse comics and it's sort of true, like you can't just define this an illness and say, okay, Tess, you know, I'm going to make a character that has fibromyalgia just for you to relate to it. And it could be completely wrong and not satisfy you in any way. So have you found characters or storylines or movies or anything that really spoke to you that you said, yeah, this is, this is totally something that relates to me? Yes and no. Um, I tend to find more individual personal interactions that relate more closely, but I do see the, like looking for, for example, at the X-Men universe, seeing that mutants to the outside world, many of them look just like everybody else. But when you learn about their experiences, when you learn about their their powers or what they had to go through in the in the, you know, quote unquote, human community, that is where you begin to relate where someone like, like a character like Rogue. It's not you know, it's not a direct connection, but I can see why the the, the movie universe Rogue would be interested in going for the cure because it's something that nobody sees about her, but it's something that she experiences every single day and having the ability to look at what someone's internal struggle that isn't necessarily reflected by their outward appearance. It reminds you that you can't, whether you're a corporation or another person, you can't judge what someone else is experiencing just by that outward appearance. Just where I can see that the the gentleman in the wheelchair doesn't necessarily find Professor X representative of his experience. That it needs to be, I need to see things that reflect people as they are, not just, oh, by the way, the character's in a wheelchair. You know, that doesn't necessarily work for me. But I do find that that struggle of balancing who you are with whom the world expects you to be, who you are with whom you wish to be, and trying to balance it all of it together to something resembling happiness, where that uh, that definitely rings through with me. Have you um, actually wished? For superpowers, like most uh, most kids, I think do, and I think I think even now, like we're full grown adult readers of comics, and we're surrounded by fantastical worlds, oh, like constantly, you know, <laughs> all, <the time. laughs> all of our entertainment. <laughs> so, um, 
like you said, uh, you know, you understand that Rogue would want the cure. And, uh, you know, to me, it seems logical that, of course, she would. But, um, you know, what a sacrifice that she would have to go through if she took it. Um, but on the other hand, she has a big sacrifice not taking it. So what what superpower has that? have you thought of? Oh, it changes depending on what particular experience I'm having. A lot of time, a lot of times it's, if only I could force choke that person and get away with it. Uh, Other times, other times it would be the ability to stall time or the ability to um, like influence, influence thought like the, the kind of, usually vampirically associated idea of being able to temporary glamour someone into thinking what you want them to think, seeing what you want them to see while it would go horribly awry in actual practice. It's tempting to be able to see can, all right, you're going to stop being a jackass for five minutes and you're going to go and say something nice to someone else as opposed to, whatever it is they're actually doing at the time. Right. <laughs> you you talked about being in Detroit, and what comes to mind is a, something akin to, like, a, a, a demilitarized zone, my life out here in the country. Um, you know, I've read the articles about how people there don't have water, even though there's... Uh, millions of dollars being put into arenas and corporate worlds and, and stuff like that. But yet there's just a like the, the most unbelievable graveyard of abandoned buildings and everything. So what is in Detroit, what impact is your city having on you? I find myself in the position uh, like many Detroiters where I both, love and loathe the city at the same time. I believe that it has potential. I also know that it has corruption that has rotted away at the foundation for 40 years or more, that its industries are trying, are struggling and sometimes failing to catch up with what the rest of the world is doing. But then I remember whatever the, the papers may say and whatever kind of, you know, abandoned building porn you want to see on, you know, in someone's photo book. I think about the people and Detroit. I, there, There's a T-shirt that that would perfectly describe it. it's Detroit hustles harder that the people who have stayed, the people who have committed to making an effort who are the ones who are actually spending time in the city and not just to go to those sports arenas, you know, the ones who, who have their favorite dive bar downtown and live there and invest their time and money there. There's such heart and such commitment to keeping it alive that I, I can't help but be awed by it. The, the people who who are truly of Detroit, whether they were raised in the city limits or not, they have a passionate dedication to it. It's it's kind of like New Yorkers, but New Yorkers take New York City for granted a bit. 
where they're like, yeah, I'm from Brooklyn. Brooklyn's always been here. Brooklyn will always be here. Detroit may not always be here. And the kind of passion that you see, especially like in the boroughs where you've got people who are, I, they, they couldn't wear the, the fact that they're from Queens as any more of a badge of honor. Detroit, people in Detroit are very much the same way and dedicated to those creative industries. The Detroit music scene is unbelievable. The independent film scene here is absolutely fantastic. The art, the the live theater productions. I mean, you're you're not going to get something like Theater Bazaar anywhere else in the country. Like, where else are you going to find a crazy circus-themed party for 5,000 people in a historic building in what otherwise seems like the middle of the demilitarized zone that sells out within days of going on sale every year and that people all over the country talk about. It's, uh, there's nowhere quite like it, that's for sure. With the, um, the, the financial bankruptcy and whatever problems that the city itself is having that the government's going through there, I remember seeing that they, they had millions of dollars worth of artwork that they were going to try and sell just to, um, you know, help put the slightest dent in the problems that they're having there. But uh, it, it is something that you hear about with with music and with all sorts of creative entertainments and um, stand-up comedy. Like you said, you, you get to see that. You get to see more of it than the average person. Yeah, I've been I've been very fortunate in my experiences in my lifetime here in Detroit that I have I I have known the 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 glass blowers and the painters and the sculptors and photographers and filmmakers, musicians and you know a a huge broad variety of creative people and I've seen how hard they work, not only at their craft, but to try and keep that toehold of this, you know, creative currency alive. The idea that if we can build the the creative arts and the the community arts sector of business here in the city that there's going to be something that's going to thrive. And, you know, Detroit and I are a lot alike. We start out doing one thing and you find yourself somewhere else completely different, but you're still working hard to try and get wherever it is that you can, even if it wasn't the original destination. So, did you, uh, I know that when I was a kid, I, every, you know, five minutes, I changed my thought about what I wanted to be when I grew up. So when you look back um, and, and you think about, you know, when you were, I don't know, maybe 13 or, or some adolescent vulnerable time, uh, what would you now at your age, what would you want to go back and, and tell yourself now that you had to live through your 20s and half your 30s, trying to figure out what was going on with your body. Um, I think the first thing I would tell myself would be that 
it's never going to be what you expect. And to not lose sight of the fact that, especially when it comes to professional decisions and, and who you, who you're going to be when you grow up, which is a process I'm still working on, um, that it's, we don't need to grow up, right? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> uh, the, that I can, I can still be satisfied with what I do and happy with who I am and feel comfortable in my own skin, even if it doesn't look the way that I think it was going to, or that it doesn't match the picture that was put in front of me as an example. Where I have found now in my late 30s that I am way more comfortable with the, you know, the, the fact that my tattoos and piercings and crazy purple, pink and neon yellow streaked hair working in an industry that is comfortable with my own particular brand of weird and that understands that no two people's experiences are the same, then I would, no matter how much I loved the the emotional reason for being in a community service position or a social service position, I never got to be myself. And when the time came that who I was included this painful, although invisible debilitating illness that it was really okay for me to be that that oddball that ran away with the circus and worked the convention circuit for two years before working in a local circus and that the regular respectable industries as quote unquote as you might want to call them are not somewhere that you have to be in order to have a fulfilling life. I love that you bring up the circus kind of quality and the circus performers and um, the whole fascination and fantasy of, of running away, being, you know, being a lost boy Uh, because it's just, I can like the first conversation I think I ever had with my mother about the Renaissance fair. That was a fun one on my part. (laughs) It was, it was something. And I don't even know if I had ever been to one at that point. I probably had, but I just remember when like a family member was talking about, you know, needing work and, you know, was thinking of giving up this sort of, bullshit corporate life or at least you know supplementing it on the weekends and you know going and, and working at the New York Renaissance Fair and my mother calling it saying you might as well just run away with the circus <laughs> like like that was the most like profoundly ludicrous unbelievable thing like nobody could possibly do this and I said I, I can't even remember when it was but it was one of these times that I was watching a trapeze artist and 
she's doing these great aerial silk things and then she has a trapeze and and this, these are the things we do here in new jersey by the way um i i'm glad to hear you know that detroit and people familiar with Cirque du Soleil are used to this kind of thing but to me this was like mind-blowing I'm middle-aged and had never seen anything like this in person before um, and now we have fitness studios that specialize in aerial fitness <laughs> it's fantastic so I'm like wow you know like one of my best friends is like an acrobat like she I mean she has a day job she has she's one of these day jobs but it, like on the weekends she can do trapeze things I'm like this is awesome I know circus people. I know burlesque people. <laughs> like, what a, what a crazy notion that, you know, those are the things that little kids dream of. Like, they, they just, flying, they just want to do all of these amazing things. You want to have spectacular costumes, and you want, to, you want everything to look like fun, and you just want to be with your friends and not have it feel like work. Absolutely. And, you know, and that exists out there. It's like so few people have that. And I'm so, you know, like, I'm so jealous that, that there's that sort of life and people figure it out. Like, I don't know that I could figure it out. I didn't think I ever could. And all of the, I worked at the Michigan Renaissance Festival for 16 years. And all of those years, any time, during that Michigan, during those eight weeks of that fair, I was working 10 hours a day, seven days a week. And I was excited to be there on the weekends. It just took me, you know, those 14 of those 16 years to figure out that perhaps that kind of industry with other people who are outside the traditional mainstream and the traditional definition of success, who may or may not be struggling with their own problems or in many cases their own demons, and that to, for it to show that you can still earn a living and still be a giving and a productive person doing something that no, everybody thinks is a total joke. Right. It's rewarding to bring joy. Yeah. And I think that's something that when it comes to, to creating because I write and, you know, and I do the podcast and I model and stuff, but you, you know, uh, do you have your own creative outlets? Uh, I don't write or, or perform, but I find that I can express my creativity through the, the costumes that I assemble when I'm going to events. Um, through the expression of personality that I exercise over my body. Um, and I'm so jealous of because <laughs> I, I've, I've never had uh, have the opportunity to have a job where I could do that. Like I, I got in trouble at my last job for my hair color. Yeah, I, I didn't do the crazy hair color until the last like two years. I had some crazy haircuts, but, um, and I had, all of my tattoos are in somewhere where they can be covered for professional purposes. Right. And I can't tell you how liberating it is to be able to, you know, at approaching 40 to be able to do whatever I want 
as long as I'm getting my job done and my job is still one that I would call a quote unquote grown up job, it has traditional responsibilities and I still manage personnel and so on and so forth. But if if I, I could show up literally with pink and purple and neon yellow in my hair and no one even so much as bats an eyelash. No, not at all. And, and, you know, and I've seen you in the, you know, you've got these these glorious, amazing corsets and, you know, cool skirts and fishnets and, you know, half your head shaved or whatever. It's, you know, when I I can remember walking into the, when you were were helping vend at the hat booth. Mm -hmm. And, like, the, the setting of it... Because, uh, like we were trying to explain, is um, is different when people at, at shows like the Steampunk World's Fair, they, they sort of make their hotel rooms into little boutiques. Right. And uh, you guys had it set up, and it was so spectacular, and there's just texture and color and smiles, and these are things that you don't get in an office. Right. <laughs> at least no office I've ever been in. And, you know, while I'm not someone who produces a creative product like like the the writers and artists and craft craftspersons and musicians that I work with I still get the benefit of being able to express myself and see them express themselves and turn that into a successful sometimes able to support themselves solely on it, but into a successful professional enterprise. And I wouldn't have thought if I had asked myself 25 years ago that you could, you could really make a living in the creative industries. And now knowing not only can you make a living doing it, you can be, happy and satisfied in that industry, making that, that successful living and doing it your way. And with, and, and in more than just my own case, whether it's struggling with mental illness or, um, a, a physical disability or some other kind of personal health or well-being challenge it pretty much makes you want to look back at all those years and be like you know what conformity you can go fuck yourself i agree it only took me till almost 40 to figure that out i'm still trying to explain it to my mom she hasn't quite gotten that yet but yeah well they they want what's best for us they want us you know to be stable oh yeah and and my family is exceedingly normal like uh-huh. exceptionally or they're almost weird they're so normal um, <laughs> so then what what is it like when uh when Tess goes home with purple hair at Thanksgiving um my family has learned that they just don't know um, they, just never... <laughs> they, not, they, don't, they know not to expect anything in particular but they've also learned that if you can't say something nice don't say anything at all so for the most part it gets kind of like deer in headlights stares and that's so creative or when I talk about my involvement in steampunk or comic books or when I talk about my job and it's weird hours and it's 
bizarre people. And most of the time they just say, oh, that sounds so interesting. Which, of course, we all know interesting is polite for weird. But, uh, and you know, weird is okay. Weird, weird works for me. Well, I figure, oh, same here. It took me forever to figure it out, but it does now. I'm just hoping that one of these days I'll be successful enough that I can transition to eccentric. Oh, see, I think you have to be 50. Oh, I think you just have to be wealthy. <laughs> oh, that too. I would love to, yes, I would love to add add that to my um, business card. Yeah, if yeah. if I hadn't had the opportunities in the, you know, in the arts and in creative industry that I've had, I don't know how much longer I would have even managed in social services considering what what the nature of my health has been. And to be able to recognize that I wasn't going to find myself trapped without any hope of standing on my own two feet, that it was it was very liberating for me to know that, you know what, maybe I don't have to look at the rest of my life as a as a sentence of days where I can't get out of bed. I can look at it as I've got the energy today. I've got the energy right now. I'm going to make the best of it while I can. At least that's what I tell myself. It doesn't always work that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, you sound like you have a far better attitude than I would. Oh, um, it's a work in progress. Believe me. I have days where I'm like, you know what? I, I can't even picture what 60 is going to look like. Like, where am I going to be at that point? Am I going to be able to continue to work full time? Am I going to have to, what am I going to have to come to accept about myself now? Um, but in the meantime, I'm, I'm going to do what I can to work hard at it and enjoy it because I'm fortunate enough that I get to be myself doing what I'm doing and not a lot of people who struggle with with the same kind of invisible but visible problems they don't have that the luxury of being in an industry that allows them to sometimes set their own schedule or work from home or and and there are days where you know I get home from a show at two o'clock in the morning and then I have to be back there at nine thirty where I'm just thinking, Oh my God, I couldn't possibly have enough energy or the hours in the day. But I would rather do that feeling comfortable in my own skin than grind myself into nothing on that, you know, through that corporate grist mill anymore. That's good. And it's it's important I think that you actually discovered these things at a relatively young age where you know you're not 60 now and looking back and going oh Jesus I wasted 40 years being stifled yeah I I know that I'm fortunate in that and I think that the fibromyalgia pushed me to that realization sooner than I would have otherwise and I've got to look at that as like a silver lining of sorts as yeah, absolutely. as difficult as the experience has been and as many days as I feel absolutely awful, I'm not 
in a position where I'm going to look back and I'm going to regret that I literally pushed myself closer to death through not taking proper care of myself by letting this this kind of you know societal notion that you know birth school work death is the way that everyone should do things no i'm i'm happy with with my little circus instead thank you <laughs> <laughs> Well, before I let you go, do, do you have um, any like charities or organizations or, or things that have helped you or that you, you normally throw support to, get recommendations by in order for you to, to get to where you have with the fibro and just in life, things that, that you found are helpful for you? Uh, as far as the fibro goes, that's been more of a direct one-to-one community support model for me you know I'm not part of I'm not involved in like a national organization but right you said that you have a good doctor and so absolutely you know I'm very fortunate for that um, but I do find that there are organizations that I have had wonderful support for elsewhere in my life um, Planned Parenthood is one that I am always looking to support uh, because they provide the the, lar- the largest amount of free medical free or low cost medical care to women between 16 and, and 29, and uh, the American Cancer Society. That those are it. They're they're very established names, but uh, at different points in my life, you know, my mom is a breast cancer survivor, and the folks from American Cancer Society went to a huge extent of offering family support and looking at the patient as a whole person and how their life affects them, which that's a model that I've been fortunate that my physician looks at as well, that you are not your illness, your family is experiencing this with you. Um, So I've always gone out out of the way to try and support their work because their philosophy helped me with my particular journey. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and this, you know, intimate look at your life. I appreciate that. It's it's been my pleasure. I'm, I'm, thank you so much for having me on the, uh, on the show and I've been delighted to do it. Um, do you have any like online places that um, you know if people follow you through social media or anything like that that you care to, to share? No, I tend to keep that stuff pretty personal. Um, okay. Mostly because it gets to be unmanageable otherwise. Yes. <laughs> um, and you know I don't have a I don't have a, a creative persona or a um, I, I'm not producing content per se so it's mostly just you know me and the facebook page just kind of hanging out okay well hopefully um then as people get to know you at the the 2015 convention circuit um you'll run into even more people you know you get to see millions of them a year (laughs) oh i absolutely do and they're always fascinating Cool. Well, Tess, uh, my weirdness honors your weirdness. Uh, well, thank you. My 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 weirdness is 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 honored by your weirdness.
you guys can of course uh, follow me because I'm on every bit of social media there is pretty much except for you know except for those things that the kids are using like Snapchat apparently has shows now I was like I thought Snapchat was for porn um, but anyway uh, mostly on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber everything else is at amberonmath.com and don't forget that uh, you can help me out uh, if you appreciate the show and the website and the content that I provide uh, there's a new Patreon page it's patreon.com slash amberonmath so thank you so much for listening And uh, until next time, cheers.